Welcome to the public morality. The Supreme Court seemed poised to uphold a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy in what would be a momentous and polarizing decision to roll back the abortion rights the court has defined for over 50 years. The Mississippi law would be flatly at odds with the landmark case of Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that established a constitutional right to abortion and prohibited states from banning the procedure before fetal viability, currently around 23 weeks. Joining me on the public morality, I'm in conversation with Professor Kerry Baker. Professor Baker teaches courses on gender, law, and public policy, feminist social movements, and reproductive justice at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Professor Kerry Baker, welcome to the public morality. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Uh, take a moment, if you would, to explain the Mississippi ab abortion law that was recently before the Supreme Court. Sure, absolutely. So Mississippi passed a ban on abortion at 15 weeks. This is a law with civil penalties for doctors, and it has no exceptions for rape or incest. There are exceptions later in pregnancy for severe health health consequences, but it's a pretty extreme law, and it's um, blatantly violates Roe versus Wade, which protects abortion rights through viability, which is about 24 weeks. So it's a full two months earlier than the than the Roe and Casey standard of viability, as far as when the state can ban abortion. Well, well, well let's, just, let's stay right there because initially, as I understood it, um, uh, the, the 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 delegates from Mississippi were focused on upholding the Mississippi law. Yeah. How did this morph into the constitutional viability of Roe? Yeah, so it's interesting because in oral arguments last Wednesday, Chief Justice Roberts basically accused the Attorney General of Mississippi of a bait and switch because when he petitioned for review, he said, you know, the issue will be whether... 15-week ban is constitutional. But then when he submitted his briefs, he asked the court to overturn Roe in its entirety. And it, it is also true, by the way, that Mississippi has passed a six-week abortion ban, which that is not before the court in this case. But that also, you know, is clearly, um, you know, there in the background. And so, I mean, this is what the movement, the anti-abortion movement wants now that they have a court that so clearly aligns with their beliefs, they want to overturn Roe. So I think they just sort of basically jumped ahead and asked for the court to just get rid of it altogether rather than just, um, you know, weaken it so significantly to a 15 week ban. Now you, you, mentioned the Casey case earlier. So how does Casey v. Planned Parenthood fit into the court's thinking here? So, you know, everybody knows Roe versus Wade, which was 1973, but the, the sort of controlling law right now is actually a 1992 case called Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which modified Roe. And I won't get into all the details about how it modified Roe, but what basically what Casey says is that before viability, and again, viability is the line, the point at which a fetus can survive outside of the womb, um, you know, and that's at about 24 weeks. 
So before viability, states can regulate abortion as long as they don't impose an undue burden on women's access to abortion. And an undue burden is defined as a substantial obstacle in the way of obtaining an abortion. Post-viability, states can ban abortion, although they have to have an exception for the life or health of the pregnant person. So that's the Casey standard at issue. And and in particular, what's at issue in the Dobbs case is that by moving back to 15 weeks to ban abortion, that is clearly in violation of both Roe and Casey. Now, when when President Trump um, nominated and she uh, Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court, she was confirmed. A lot of people predicted that this day might come. Um, now that this day is here where, where, where Roe is being threatened, or as I said, at the very least, stands on tenuous ground. Now, um, what are some of your personal te- takeaways from the hearings that you could share? Well, I found the hearing um, very disturbing. And, and in part, you know, because of the kinds of questions that came from the conservatives on the court. So now, just to give a little bit of context, the court has historically been quite balanced on the issue of abortion. And usually there's a swing vote, usually a a Republican appointee swing vote like um, Sandra Day O'Connor or Kennedy. And they have gone with the left-leaning side of the court to uphold abortion rights. But under the Trump administration, you know, Mitch McConnell had held open a seat, Scalia seat, uh, over 10 months until Trump got elected and then Trump appointed Gorsuch. And then, of course, you had Kennedy stepping down, which Trump appointed Kavanaugh. And then in the very last month um, before the election, RBG died. And, you know, rather than wait for the new president, McConnell and company rushed through a nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. So for the first time really ever, there's a 6-3 sort of extremely conservative supermajority that have all explicitly said they oppose abortion. So the court is very skewed to the right. And and so I knew that they were very hostile to abortion rights. But what made me so shocked at the hearing last week was the conservative majorities in the in the kinds of questions they asked, in the ways they asked, asked those questions, in the ways they treated the attorneys arguing against the Mississippi law, they showed a contempt for women's fundamental rights and a disregard for the impact that abortion bans would have on women's lives. And that's what I found so disturbing. And I, I could speak more specifically about that if you're interested. Please, but, please, please, please do. Oh, Continue. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, one example is Amy Coney Barrett's comment that, well, forced pregnancy isn't that hard on women because they can just give the kids up for adoption. I mean, that it seems so callous. And if you know anything, and she should know because she's a mother, if you know anything about, and I am too, I've, I have two sons, you you don't just give birth and just say, okay, well, I'm just going to give up my child, right? I mean, that's very traumatic, And, you know, if if you've done any research on the impact of having to give up um, children 
you know, who were born. It's, it's, it's a life altering experience. So it's her sort of like, oh, they could just give him up. No big deal is, is just unrealistic, but more importantly, callous. And then it also completely er erases the sort of physical impact of pregnancy and childbirth on a woman. And I think this is something that often gets completely ignored in conversations about um, abortion and about, um, you know, coerced, forced pregnancy. Pregnancy, labor, and childbirth are difficult, risky experiences. Pregnancy causes nausea, fatigue, tender and swollen breasts, constipation, body aches, dizziness, sleep problems, heartburn, indigestion, I could go on, I will, hemorrhoids, leg cramps, numbing and tingling hands, swelling. I mean, it just goes on and on. And that's just the pregnancy part. Um, you know, it takes over your entire body, affecting your cardiovascular system, kidneys, respiratory system, gastrointestinal system, skin, hormones. It increases your blood volume by 50% and sucks calcium out of your bones, decreasing your bone density. The risks of pregnancy include high blood pressure, gestational diabetes, anemia, depression, infection, and death. And so for her to say, oh, it's no big deal, just give birth and give up the child. It completely ignores the physical experience of pregnancy. And then there's labor and childbirth. And, and I think, you know, especially in states like Mississippi, Mississippi has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the country, higher than many developing countries. And it's, it's extremely risky and it's very painful. Anybody that's been through childbirth, knows it's extremely painful it's bloody it's you know it it's um tears your tissue it it you know i mean it, you just to know anything about pregnancy is to know it's a very physically traumatic dangerous and risky experience and for the state to force a person to have to go through that experience against their will to me is is immoral it's a form of violence against women and, you know, for them to pretend that it's just no big deal is, um, you know, again, I mean, I know your program's called Public Morality. I, I think it's immoral. And, um, and just one last thing I want to say, in no other area of the law do we require a human being to donate their organs, blood and body to another human being. If someone forces another person to donate a kidney, it's a crime. But here we're just sort of that never even comes up in the conversation. Of, of abortion. Um, you know, it's a, in my mind, forced um, pregnancy is, uh, you know, it's a form of violence against women, but that, you know, that didn't, that didn't get talked about at all. So, so that's sort of my, po my point on the way that the court was just so flippant when Kavanaugh said, we're just going to be neutral. You know, it's like, well, you, you know, for the Supreme court to just be neutral on human rights and to allow people to suffer and, you know, to take away constitutional rights that they once had, that's not neutral. That's not neutral at all. That's violating people's fundamental human rights. So, you know, to try to, I, I really felt like they were gaslighting us. You know, if it, that's kind of a term that gets bandied around, but that like, you know, oh, we're just being neutral. Oh, this is no big deal for you. They're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. And for them to pretend that is, um, I just think a, a real, um, violation on multiple levels well and you're right the show is called the public morality and we get that from is derived from the declaration of independence and the constitution 
So on that note, as you mentioned with Justice Kavanaugh, who talked about a constitutional neutrality, what is that? And, 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 and what is the subtext of not only that comment, but would you also add the subtext of how you took Justice Amy Coney Barrett's uh, remarks about foster care as well, if you would? Yeah, yeah, so interesting. So constitutional neutrality, you know, the Constitution isn't neutral. The Bill of Rights is to protect our rights. It was the first 10 amendments were part of the Constitution at the founding of the country. They were adopted right after the Constitution was adopted. And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were adopted right after the Civil War to protect the rights of newly freed African Americans in the country. It's not neutral. It's to protect groups that have historically been discriminated against and oppressed and Acts of violence have been committed against them. The idea that the Supreme Court or that the Constitution should no longer protect the rights of oppressed minorities, of people discriminated against, to me is, going back to your show's title, immoral. But I also think it's just legally wrong. The Constitution and the Supreme Court has, in, the Supreme Court has interpreted the Constitution for hundreds, well, for at least for decades to protect individual rights, to protect, for instance, African-Americans from discrimination, to protect, for instance, women from discrimination, the Equal Protection Clause, the um, Due Process Clause, guaranteeing liberty. It protects things like the right to use contraception, the right to educate your children, the right to... Um, marry the person of your choice, the right to have consensual sex among um, consenting adults in, in privacy and, you know, among married couples. There, there are a whole lot of rights that the Constitution for quite a while has been interpreted to guarantee that states can't interfere with those rights. Um, and that's that's not to even talk about things like free speech and the right to be to counsel and the right to a jury trial. I mean, if the constitutional is neutral with regard to our rights, that's an evisceration of the constitution. And I think that is the goal of the right wing in this country is to try to remove the protections of people of color and women in particular, so that, you know, white males can continue to dominate you know, they dominate in Congress. Um, they dominate most institutions in our society, and they like it that way. They run most of the Fortune 500 companies and own most of the wealth. And the idea of discriminated against groups having rights is very threatening to them. It's very threatening to white supremacy, and it's very threatening to male supremacy. And so I think that what they want to do is say, the Constitution can't protect anybody. It's neutral as to whether you're a man or a woman or a black person or a Latino or, a, you know, a white person. You know, it's that old colorblind Constitution argument that the right makes, which is, you know, um, I think just a way of not addressing our history and ongoing experiences of things like racism and sexism in this country. So that that's how I would respond to Kavanaugh's comment. And by the way, I went to, I was an, a, a classmate of his at Yale. I graduated the same year in 1987 and um, I won't go any further, but 
I do remember he drank a lot of beer. But anyway, <laughs> that aside, um, as far as Amy Coney Barrett and foster care, she must not know much about the foster care system. It devastates children. We have a very um, deficient foster care system in this country uh, where children do not get the care they need. Many children do not get the care they need. One of my areas of research is um, commercial sexual exploitation of children and child sex trafficking. And so I did, I, I looked very closely at our country's foster care system and the ways in which um, way disproportionately children that end up trafficked are children who grew up or have experience in the foster care system where they experienced sexual abuse and they experienced um, neglect and lack of care. And, you know, this idea that, oh, just give up your children and throw them into the foster care system, I think is just, again, very callous and, and not based in an in, in informed knowledge about how that works in our country. I also think that um, she is completely ignoring the racial um, impacts and disproportion in the foster care system. And, and just more generally, when we're talking about abortion, I mean, 75% of the people who get abortion in this country are low-income people, and disproportionately, they're people of color. And disproportionately, the foster care system, it, um, it's, it's African-American kids and it's other kids of color that are in that system, often coming from low-income or, or families in poverty, which has been, um, uh, you know, basically in our country, um, if you don't have enough money to raise your child, you might lose your child because you'll be seen as neglecting their needs. You know, if, if we don't have social support systems that enable people to take care of their children and they have to work three jobs and, and therefore, quote unquote, neglect their children, they can lose their children. And, you know, the people like Amy Coney Barrett who are pushing abortion bans and, you know, are the same people that don't support the systems that can help low-income and poor people, right? And poor children. I mean, the U.S. has one of the highest poverty, child poverty rates in the industrialized world. And, you know, if they're really concerned about life and they're really concerned about babies and children, then why don't they put their time and attention into trying to address child poverty in this country rather than just trying to force poor women to have more children that they're not willing to invest in supporting? And when I say they, I mean conservatives that have gutted our social safety net systems. You know, I read one headline that 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 um, said Supreme Court poised to uphold Mississippi abortion law. And and I think we're going to if we're going to be honest, um, the fact is we don't know. Now, and that because you could have said I, I would make the argument you could have said the. You could have the same headline about the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Um, but it was upheld. But then again, you didn't have the same six to margin you have now. But yeah. I guess my question to you, if what I just said were true, that we don't know, what would have been the point of the court taking this case if it were not to possibly curb abortion rights? Yeah. Yeah, it was really ominous when they took the case. And keep in mind, it was sitting on their docket for quite a while before they accepted it. And it wasn't until Coney Barrett got on the court that I think they actually got the critical mass to accept the case. So you need a certain number of justices to accept a case. 
And, you know, it had the ban had been struck down at the lower court level. It was clearly in violation of Roe. Um, there was no reason for them to take this case unless they were interested in revisiting Roe. Um, you know, they had had an abortion case just, um, you know, a term or two ago, the June Medical Services case, and they had, you know, sort of stuck with their president and Roberts joined the liberal end of the court to uphold that precedent. But I think the big difference now is, you know, it doesn't matter what Roberts does now because there's five more extreme far-right folks on the court that can overturn Roe or uphold the Mississippi ban without um, Roberts. Now, I, I think that people were really wondering about Barrett and Kavanaugh because, you know, they're relatively new to the court. They're the two newest members. And while they both had anti-abortion histories, um, Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit and Barrett in her published writings, you know, they had both sort of given lip service to stare decisis in their um, confirmation hearings. Remember Susan Collins voting in favor of them saying, oh, they believe in stare decisis, they'll uphold Roe. Um, and so, you know, pe fair people were sort of saying, okay, well, let's just see. But then it was what happened at the oral arguments last Wednesday and the sort of what the kinds of questions they asked and how they asked them that I think why we saw all those headlines the next morning saying, well, they're going to at least uphold the 15-week ban and maybe go further. We'll see. Um, and so I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised in the ACA case. I think, though, that it's complicated and, and there's a lot of, of moving parts and things going on. I think that Roberts is an incrementalist. He likes to do, you know, he, he definitely has a long-term goal, but he's, he doesn't want to do it outright in a shocking way. He wants to do it slow and gradually, kind of like, you know, a frog in water that's slowly warming up to a boil. <laughs> I think, you know, but I think that the more extreme members on the court want to just, you know, throw the frog in boiling water. I think they're, they're not as, as willing to do that. Um, but, you know, there's also political implications because if a decision comes down right before the November elections, um, you know, in July or June or July, overturning Roe and upholding this 15-week abortion ban, then I think that that will really mobilize women. The, the polling, um, I recently interviewed um, some polling people on this issue for some of my public writing, and um, that would really mobilize women voters in really significant numbers. So, you know, people talk about, well, maybe, you know, the Republicans have caught the car, right? You yeah. know, the dog, the dog. The car. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, on, on, that, on that note, um, I, I'm wondering when you look at the history of the court, especially um, the court in the 20th century going forward, I'm thinking back to First Amendment cases like um, Shank versus United States and uh, 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 yeah, uh, and Brandenburg v. Ohio, in that they share this thing, uh, Miranda, if you would, the, uh, Griswold, they share this thing where the court was also aware of the culture at the time. For example, uh, Griswold comes, the Griswold, uh, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but Griswold comes out right after um, the birth control pill comes out. So you had a culture ready for Griswold that had Griswold 
my view, come out 20 years earlier, it would have had a, it may have had a different ruling. This court does not seem to be in line with how society feels because for varying reasons, the overwhelming, my polling shows that the overwhelming majority of the country in yeah. some form supports Roe. Your Absolutely. thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah. They're very out of step. They're not only out of step with the U.S., but they're out of step with the world. I thought it was so ironic when the Texas abortion ban went into effect right around the same time that Mexico legalized abortion. I mean, it's like we're going in exactly the opposite direction of most, you know, advanced democracies. Um, And it is perplexing. Um, And, you know, I think it's a lot of on the ground work of, you know, the right wing for many generations, particularly focused on the court. I mean, we were very vulnerable because abortion rights hinged largely on on a court decision, nine people on the court, um, not democratically elected, appointed by political, you know, machinations and, um, you know, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. But I, 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 I think it is very surprising. Um, I, I don't. And, and I, by the way, I agree that the polling has consistently shown the majority of Americans support abortion rights, and um, you know the majority of Americans, sort of across religious group, have abortions. I mean, Catholics. You know, the Catholic Church has been a leader in the anti-abortion movement. Catholic women have abortions at the same rate as everybody else. Catholic women use contraception at the same rate as everybody else, despite the Catholic church's position. Um, You know, I think that um, the court in essence has become a little bit like Congress. Republican representatives don't actually represent Republican views, and they certainly don't represent the country's views. There's sort of this rarefied right-wing group in power that, that are not swayed by what people want, um, even their voters, but they're certainly not swayed by voters in general and what they want. Um, But I think that the cat is out of the bag with abortion um, because of the abortion pill. I don't think they're ever going to put it back in the bag. And I can speak to this as well as if you want. I've done a lot of writing on medication abortion and the abortion pill and um, the increasingly easy access that people can get to it. And, um, you know, that's going to, I've argued in my own writing in this magazine that that's revolutionizing abortion in this country. And, um, you know, they're not going to be able to keep, post-Roe is not going to look like pre-Roe. Abortion will be much safer. Um, Illegal abortion will be much safer and easier to get than than it was pre-Roe. Uh, what, what I, where, where I do want to go vis-a-vis Roe v. Wade is that when we talk about Roe, it's always obviously in the context of, of, of abortion. So people see it um, as, as, as an abortion case. But Roe was settled, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but Roe was settled on the basis of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment as well as the right to privacy uh, resulting from the 1965 decision that we mentioned earlier, Griswold versus Connecticut. Yeah. If the court sides in favor of the Mississippi law, does that make the right of privacy subjective on a state by state basis, in your view? So, I mean, this issue is something that concerns people. And I believe that Sotomayor brought this up is that if we overturn Roe, does that mean that all the other line of cases having to do 
with connected to privacy, procreation, um, fundamental right to determine one's family, do all of, all of them disappear? And so we're talking not only about Griswold, which protects access to abortion, but Lawrence versus Texas, which protects um, consensual adult sexual activity. That was the law involving bans on sodomy. How about um, Obergefell versus Hodges? Um, excuse me? How about Obergefell versus Hodges? Would that yeah. also... Exactly. Same-sex marriage, the Obergefell decision, um, but also even Loving versus Virginia, which was the decision that um, overturned anti-miscegenation laws, laws that prohibited people of different races from marrying. Um, and then and then even more, I mean, laws that allow parents to determine how their children are educated or, or whether they can get married or not. Um, you know, uh, so, so the conservatives have not liked this right to privacy. And by the way, that was why Justice Thomas repeatedly asked each attorney about where is abortion in the Constitution? What's the right? Is it privacy? Is it bodily autonomy? What is it? What he was trying to get at is that nowhere in the Constitution is it explicitly say there's a right to privacy, right? This is something conservatives have not liked for a long time. Is Roe, when it was originally decided, um, Justice Blackman talked about um, that there were penumbras around a number of amendments, and everybody had to look up what penumbra was in the dictionary, right? This is that there are sort of emanations off of, you know, uh, multiple amendments that sort of protect people's privacy from government interference. And so they pointed to, like, the First Amendment, freedom of association, the Third Amendment, right to not to have to quarter soldiers in your home, the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure clause, the Fifth Amendment, right to not self-incriminate, right? And what he said was all these amendments sort of create a zone of privacy that the government shouldn't interfere in. And that zone of privacy includes marital relationships, sexuality, you know, and the use, being able to use contraception and eventually being able to have an abortion, right? And conservatives hate that. They have never liked that. They've, they have not liked this idea that there's not, you know, that they want to be textualist, right? And originalist. They want to say, well, the framers of the 14th Amendment didn't say anything about abortion, or the A word is not in the 14th Amendment. And the attorneys for the clinics were arguing, well, it's the liberty word in the 14th Amendment, you know, that states can't deprive people of liberty without due process of law. Liberty means the right. Life. To, yeah, the right. Isn't life, isn't life involved in the 14th Amendment somewhere? Yeah, the the right to life, liberty, and um, prop. What is it? Well, no, it's, it's, you can't deprive anyone of life or liberty without due press, equal protection, or due process of law. So, right, it, <laughs> right. and so um, you know the the idea is um, you know what Rick Rickleman kept on pushing the attorney for the clinic was that this idea of liberty the court has interpreted for a long time now to mean the government can't rifle through your underwear drawer without probable cause or without, you know, and that for certain things they can't rifle at all. And so, um, you know, but, you know, Thomas and the rest of them really resist that. They want to say that it's not the federal government's role, that states should be able to determine whether they can rifle in your underwear drawer and look for contraception or see what you're doing in bed when they burst into your bedroom and arrest you if you're having the wrong kind of sex. And, and again, I just think that's so out of, out of, um, not only out of, um, step with constitutional 
interpretation for, you know, really over 50 years going on even longer, but it's out of step with American society and beliefs. You know, I've always, you know, one of the things, and and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not an attorney, so I'm, I'm, I'm leaving on your expertise to, to guide me here. But I've always found fascinating when you hear the argument, well, where's abortion in the in the Constitution, and people rejecting the the penumbra argument. I mean, to have that argument, don't you also have to hold that the Ninth Amendment doesn't exist? That yeah. That, right. that, that, that certain rights shall not, if, we, if the rights aren't here, doesn't mean that they're not here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The framers were very careful when they set out the, the, uh, the amendments to say, this is not all the rights. This isn't a complete list. So the Ninth Amendment basically says that, you know, if we didn't say it here, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And that really opened the door for the court to, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is the Constitution uses very broad language. It was also written hundreds of years ago, and the world has changed. You know, I, I always want to say, well, okay, you Second Amendment people, there's nothing about AK-45s in the Second Amendment, so therefore, does that mean we can ban them? It says a well-ordered militia, it says, you know, or, or arms. Yeah, I mean, it, it the words are broad and we have to interpret them with changing times. I mean, under their theory, how could we ever say anything about computers or the Internet? Because it didn't exist at the time. The framers wouldn't have known what that meant. Does that mean the Constitution can never say anything about the Internet? So I, I just feel like it's a very it's it, really it's an excuse to reinforce oppressive status quos. It's the it's the excuse of white supremacy and male supremacy to justify not um, changing and not incorporating everybody in our democracy and in the rights that our Constitution guarantees to be able to say, well, it's it. The only thing protected was what was protected in, you know, the 1700s. Or, you know, and it's like, well, that means that we had enslaved people and women had no legal rights. And, you know, is that what you want? And of course, you know, that's what Scalia said. He said he would have overturned the Equal Protection Clause application to women. He said, you know, that wasn't what people intended in the 1860s when the equal when the 14th Amendment was passed, there was no intent to protect women's rights. If you want that, then you need to pass an amendment to the Constitution. And, you know, that was his view. And his acolyte, Amy Coney Barrett, and several other members of the current court um, are likely to agree with that perspective and, and say that they don't even think that the rights, you know, under the Equal Protection Clause should apply to women or um, who knows, maybe to African-Americans, too. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I would say to you that, that the, the, the Scalia uh, position that you just outlined is a convenient selective one because that kind of thinking didn't apply in the Heller case when he wrote the opinion on, you know, Heller versus, you know, D.C. No, excuse me, D.C. versus Heller. He, he, he had a different way of approaching originalism back then so that it did. So did it so it would fit a different narrative. <laughs> I do think that, you know, a lot of times and then people on the left probably do this too. They pretend it's principle when it's really just politics. I mean, they have an end they want to reach and they, you know, like Kavanaugh saying neutrality. I mean, you know, he doesn't care about neutrality. He he will he will decide a decision the way he wants it to go. I mean, okay, so let's have neutrality about whether 
corporations are are people. Let's let's have neutrality. Let's get rid of Citizens United and have neutrality about free speech rights of corporations. I mean, that's not what he's about. He's he's cherry picking neutrality for the issues that he wants to disfavor, and then for the issues he wants to favor, he's ruling, um, you know, in favor of the big corporations or you know the um, privileged people that he sides with. I think. Uh, I'm, I'm talking with Professor uh, Kerry Baker, uh, Smith College of about the Mississippi uh, abortion law. Um, Professor Baker. Uh, if you could, what what's the problem with leaving the decision of abortion rights up to each individual state? Talk about that world, if you would. Well, um, so I can talk sort of practically, and then I can talk legally. But sort of practically, 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion if Roe falls. That's research out of the Guttmacher Institute, which is a very reliable um, you know, research organization that sort of tracks laws on abortion, but also tracks um, abortion itself and the incidents and all of that. And um, so many states have what's called trigger laws, which are laws that would immediately overturn abortion rights in the state if Roe were to be overturned. Um, other states have pre-Roe laws banning abortion that could revive if Roe did not exist. Um, and, you know, so vast swaths of the South and the Midwest would lose access to abortion. And people in those areas of the country would have to travel hundreds of miles. And Guttmacher actually did research on how much farther are people going to have to travel. And I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it's a really, really long way. Like in Mississippi, they'll have to, it'll go from like 15 miles to 500 miles. I mean, they have to go up to Illinois to Chicago or something like that. And, and they actually have this great interactive map that shows exactly how far everybody's going to have to travel to get to the nearest clinic if Roe falls. And I think we have to keep in mind that get 75% of people who need abortion are low-income people. And often they need abortion because they can't afford medical care and contraception. And they don't have the resources to travel 500 miles. And put their kids in childcare and keep in mind that most people who have abortion already have kids and they're often working, you know, low wage jobs that are not flexible. That won't just give them time off. They may not have cars. They may not have transportation. Um, you know, it's, it will be an, an enormous burden on people in the United States, but even more, well, not even more importantly, another really important aspect to this is when abortion becomes illegal, it not only hurts people who want to have abortions, it also hurts people who want to carry pregnancies to term. There's a lot of evidence that um, when abortion is legal, doctors are very hesitant to treat their patients with pregnancies that are uh, threaten their lives or their health. And you know, I'll give you just a really high-profile example of this. Ireland used to ban abortion. And there was a physician, she was maybe in her 30s, she got pregnant with a wanted pregnancy. About halfway through the pregnancy, um, she began to miscarry and she got an infection. And because of the abortion ban, doctors were worried 
to do the abortion. They thought it might, you know, there were exceptions for life or health, but they just weren't sure that it was dangerous enough to her health to do it. And so they waited and she died. And that is not uncommon. Doctors, you know, that where, where, you know, the criminal justice system is hanging over their shoulder, they're going to wait if a woman has an emergency and they're going to say, well, let's just see how things go. And that's extremely dangerous, not only to her health, but her life. And, and actually that case led to Ireland, of all places, um, a referendum that legalized abortion. And this was just a couple of years ago, it was in 2018. And, you know, here in the United States, in Texas, we're already seeing you know, people who who are pregnant and with wanted pregnancies, their their lives being endangered by this abortion ban. So I I think that that if Roe is overturned and the decision goes back to the states and 26 states ban it, I think we will see women die. I think we will see women suffer tremendous health consequences. I think that we will um, we'll see a lot of illegal abortion. Um, women ordering abortion pills online. Now, that's quite safe. So I actually think if women find that option and do it, I think that won't be a problem. But I do think that states will begin trying to persecute women that do this and certainly people that help them. And, and you know, I mean, it will cause a tremendous amount of harm. It will bolster, you know, another thing is it will, we already have mass incarceration in this country. We ain't seen nothing yet. If abortion becomes illegal, um, particularly mass incarceration of women will increase significantly, particularly women of color and low income women, which already overpopulate our prisons. Um, you know, this, the, the whole idea that you deal with a health, a health problem by locking people up is really archaic. And, and by the way, racist and sexist as well. You, you mentioned earlier, so I wanted I wanted to, to come back to it. What is um, stare decisis? Could you explain that for our listeners, please? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we lawyers like to talk, speak Latin to try to be all fancy. Um, stare decisis is Latin for basically let the decision stand, which is this idea that once a decision's been made, and it, you know, is a considered decision that the court comes to, that court, the Supreme Court, or lower courts should not overturn that decision unless there's a really compelling reason to do so. And the courts have worked out sort of test for what, you know, when can we overturn decisions? And it's, and they talked about that a lot in the oral arguments last Wednesday, but it's things like, you know, is the decision still workable? Has there been tremendous changes in society that makes the decision unworkable or, you know, has, um, you know, is there or has there been a reliance on the decision? Therefore, we shouldn't overturn it because people have sort of organized their life around this decision. And therefore, to overturn it would disrupt significant parts of society. So there's sort of, you know, a four part test. And, you know, in theory, what the court should do is go through this test and determine, um, you know, should a decision be overturned? And a lot of the discussion last Wednesday was going through those various parts of the test and say, you know, has this been met or not? And, you know, Rickleman and, and the people representing the clinic said, you know, women rely on Roe. They've organized their lives. They've gone and gotten law degrees and they've, you know, they've gotten medical degrees and they've um, entered college, you know, sort of counting on the fact that they can control their fertility and, 
and, you know, determine when they have a child and they've invest, you know, they've taken out huge college loans and that they need to pay back by working. And, and so being, having access to contraception and abortion is key to, you know, them being able to do that. Um, so that was one part of it, but, you know, they also argued, um, that really not much has changed. I mean, the decision has been very workable. It's been, um, you know, it has, um, you know, it's been clear enough, you know, viability is a pretty clear line. You know, at one point O'Connor said, oh, it's on a collision course with science because viability is getting sooner and earlier and earlier. Well, that's just not true. A fetus really cannot survive outside of the room before about 23 or 24 weeks. Um, you know, the chances of survival are minuscule before that time. And I mean, maybe in some futuristic world, we have like, you know, um, incubators that can gestate embryos, but we're, we're nowhere near that. And so, you know, that was a lot of the discussion. And in the questions that were asked by people like Gorsuch, it was very clear that they didn't seem to be too worried about overturning Roe. And even though it was such a strong, longstanding precedent that was reaffirmed again in 1992 in Casey, and even just two years ago in the June Medical Service, or three years ago in June Medical Services. So, um, so we'll see. I mean, a, a lot of the argument from the the progressive end of both the court and the attorneys was that it's it undermines the rule of law for just some political hacks to get on the court and just change everything just because they don't like what the political decision was. So for somebody to come on the court and they're just anti-abortion, so let's just change the abortion law, as opposed to thinking about the law and why the law the way it is and whether it's been workable, um, it undermines the legitimacy of the court. And that was something that got hammered home beautifully by Justice Sotomayor when she said it creates a stench, a stench of the politicization of the court that trumps three appointments under highly questionable circumstances that, you know, involved a lot of political shenanigans by Mitch McConnell, it makes it sound like that the Supreme Court is no longer interpreting the law fairly, but it's just enacting sort of right-wing politics. When I think about um, stare decisis, two cases that, that I think really make your point about when you do overturn something that the court has handed down, it, the two cases that come to my mind are, are Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Kavanaugh brought that up and he said, sometimes there's just a moral wrong that we need to overturn because it's so bad. And, yeah. you know, in reference to Brown versus Board of Education. But, but does Roe fit those four categories that you just talked about? Uh, absolutely not, in my mind. Absolutely not. And it also, I think we need to keep in mind when we talk about something like Brown versus Board of Education, that was enhancing people's rights. Roe is about taking rights away. I mean, the, the decisions that... Kavanaugh listed off were all decisions um, um, interpreting human rights and, and, and rights to people, not taking away longstanding rights from people. So in that sense, I think um, it, it's, it's a completely different case. But then just going to the, to the stare decisis standards, I mean, Roe's been very workable. It's been um, very, um, it's been repeatedly reaffirmed. Um, it, Like I mentioned before, people have relied on it and, and organized their life around it. Um, and, you know, it's not like um, there's a clear 
I mean, you know, obviously there's a segment of the society that thinks abortion's wrong, but there's a bigger segment of the society that doesn't think abortion is wrong. And, you know, this, this question about when life begins, I thought that was another interesting part of the decision in part because Sotomayor, Sotomayor called out the elephant in the room that never gets talked about. And this was true also in same-sex marriage cases, which is religion. A lot of opposition to same-sex marriage and to abortion is a religious belief. And, you know, that's fine, but religious people can't use government and courts to impose their religious beliefs on people with other religious beliefs or people that don't agree with those people's religious beliefs or who are non-religious. And that's what the right is trying to do. They're trying to use the mechanisms of government to create, um, to impose specific religious beliefs on the general population. And this is really, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think, again, it's they're going to be shooting themselves in the foot if they do this because, um, you know, religions don't agree. And, you know, one religion might get in power and perse persecute another religion. I mean, I think that our First Amendment is really good in asking the government to be fastidiously neutral with regard to religion and not either imposing religious beliefs nor um, in, in infringing people's ability to exercise their rights to have religious beliefs. I mean, I'm fine with religious folks not having abortions, and I'm fine with religious folks expressing their views on not having abortions. But to try to make the law impose their religious beliefs on everybody else is really problematic, my opinion. Uh, finally, I, I have a two-part question for you. Um, it, it, it seems at this point that, that I mean, these are my words. Uh, we, we're, we're two possibilities. I asked you earlier, that it seemed unlikely that the court would have taken this case if it were not going to in some way chip away at Roe. So I see two possibilities. The court could decide to respect the essential holding of Roe and uphold the constitutionally protected right to obtain abortion, but decide the right in a much narrower way, thereby affirming the Mississippi law. Or B, the court could simply, as you just mentioned, just do away with stare decisis and conclude Roe was wrongly decided. Do you see any other possible outcome here? Uphold Roe and strike down the Mississippi law? <laughs> that, that would be, uh, no, I don't, I don't think that's a possible outcome. I mean, I think it's a possible outcome. I just don't think it's a likely outcome. Um, no, I mean, I, I think people think those are the two options. I mean, my sort of nightmare possibility, and, and this gets talked about in sort of extreme circles, is that the, and this is, of course, the ultimate goal of the anti-abortion movement, is like a human life amendment to interpret that fetuses have the full rights of citizens. You know, now the 14th Amendment says no, no, citizens are people born or naturalized in the United States. It explicitly says born. So, you know, that is what Blackman talked about in Roe is that fetuses don't have the rights of citizens uh, by the explicit language of the 14th Amendment. But, you know, that is the ultimate goal. They want to be able to not only allow the 26 states to be on abortion, but to prohibit states like Massachusetts from allowing abortion. That is the really nightmare, scary scenario. But between the two likely scenarios, which is, um, you know, uphold Mississippi's law or overturn Roe, um, you know, I would 
And I have a different characterization of upholding the Mississippi law. That is overturning Roe. That is significantly overturning Roe and Casey. And, you know, that is, again, I think if they do that, I mean, under what theory could they do that? There's no, they'd have to come up with an entirely new justification. And, you know, the six right-wing justices that want to make abortion legal, are you think they're going to come up with a justification for Roe? I just can't, I can't even think how that would be. And there were sort of hints that, oh, they'll interpret the, un, they'll get rid of viability and interpret the undue burden standard to say that it's not an undue burden to require people to decide whether to have an abortion within the first 15 weeks. Well, the problem with that is, first of all, for the people between 15 and 24 weeks, it's an absolute bar. I mean, there's no undueness about that. I mean, that's a bar. And we're talking about like, you know, 60,000 people a year, often people that have significant health issues and, you know, or have other barriers. I mean, we're nothing like Europe where here there's all kinds of barriers that the right wing has put in place to accessing abortion that pushes the need for abortion later and later in pregnancy. Like just take the cost. It costs on average like $550 to get an abortion. Well, for somebody earning minimum wage, that's like a lot, a lot of money. And of course, Medicaid doesn't cover abortion. And then there's waiting periods and there's, you know, requirements that they make multiple visits to the doctor. And, you know, they've closed down so many clinics. There's people have to travel hundreds of miles. So, I mean, I, I, I people are trying to sort of create this narrative that, oh, it wouldn't be that bad. You know, 90% of abortions happen before 15 weeks. And so to ban it at 15 weeks, it wouldn't affect that many people, wouldn't be that bad. I totally disagree with that. And I also think that it, again, would just be one step towards an entire ban. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, what's the difference between 15 and six weeks then? And, you know, I mean, I guess you could say, well, a lot more people would be blocked. But for those people that are losing the right, it's an absolute burden. Professor Kerry Baker, Smith College, I want to thank you so much for your passion and your erudition uh, and joining me today on the public rally. Much, much appreciated. You're welcome. Great to be here. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.